0: Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and this is one of my absolutely favorite podcasts that I do because it can be about anything and everything. That's the title of the podcast. And I very specifically wanted to talk to Jeff Madoff, my talking partner here, because the previous podcast we did was when Jeff had had one week under his belt with the first presentation, first live presentation of his soon-to-be Broadway musical sensation, which is called Personality. And uh, if I remember correctly, we did it on the first Sunday after you had started on the previous Sunday, and you had had a week's worth of presentations, and you went through things that you were discovering and all of it good. There was no real bad. Now we're... What should have been today should have been the final presentation, but the current world topic of COVID came in and it cut your final week short. So we're here on what have been the third week from the beginning of the play. But my feeling the last time I talked to you was when you announced that they were going to have to drop the final week. You said that you and especially the director of the play had really satisfied yourself that any further adjustments could be done in rehearsal and you wouldn't have to have another live run. And all the live run now is the complete 100% business of the play to get out there and be profitable and be famous. So just start off with three things that you now know today that you didn't know three weeks ago. You know, I've learned so many
1: lessons over these past it's over two months that have been quite incredible. And this is new experience for me too. So I'm kind of hyper aware of what I'm going through and trying to take in these lessons and trying to continue to move forward with additional knowledge. The interesting thing is that, you know, what I did is begin a startup. And like any startup, it needed seed money, And one of the things that we learned, and probably the most important thing that we learned over this run, and I'm going to give you a sidebar to it. Our first day of rehearsal was February 8th. That's my birthday. Mm -hmm. The first day of performances in front of an audience was March 9th. That was Lloyd's birthday. Lloyd Price. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I just think there is a kind of a coincidental and interesting symmetry to that. I can't assign a lot of meaning to it, but it certainly wasn't a plan. It was a coincidence. Mm -hmm. But one of the main things I learned, which is critical for any business, is proof of concept. You know, aside from friends who liked the and were supportive, would people buy tickets who have no vested interest in anything other than enjoying themselves for two and a half hours when they go to the theater and paying for a ticket to do so? And how would the audience response be? And how would the critical response be? You know, we established proof of concept. Mm-hmm. The audiences love the play. You saw it twice. So you got to compare even audience responses. And that was fantastic. The critical response was extremely good. That was fantastic. And word of mouth, which is I don't care what business you're in, that's the best way to sell anything. Our word of mouth built that not only were they attracting a more diverse audience than they ever had at that theater, they were attracting consistently more excitement. You did some of that sort of word of mouth research yourself at when you were at the mm-hmm. theater and you informed me of it. And then I asked further in terms of just how strongly it was responded to by the subscribers and donors of the theater. So... Establishing proof of concept was huge. How you establish that proof of concept in a realistic way was also something that I was learning. And there's an interesting thing about reviews, you know, because on one hand, of course, everybody wants good reviews, but some highly successful plays like Wicked is a recent example, got horrible reviews and has run for years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Great reviews are not necessarily a harbinger of success. Bad reviews are not a harbinger of failure. And although it's good to have as many positive things in your favor as possible. Mm -hmm. And I also learned how, you know, spending that much time in the development with actors and dancers and the respect I have for how they manifest their talents and what they're able to do and how they're able to turn on a dime and adapt and so on was really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And as we were in previews, which is the last time you can make any changes, you lock the play, which means you don't make any more changes so that the last preview or two is what's being presented opening night. You know, that changes signposts for the actors and for the musicians and for the dancers. And, you know, when you see how quickly a pro adapts and you realize what it takes to be really a professional in those worlds Mm -hmm. is quite fascinating. And that's just Mm -hmm. the
0: surface of some of the things that I learned during this run. Yeah, well, just to augment what you've said, Babs and I had got a sneak preview of what the full presentation would look like three years ago, because you invited us to what are called the workshop, the 72 hours when you can get in two full runs of the play. And you had a complete cast back then. You had musicians, but there was no costumes. And I think, you know, the fact that you got us into the audience was probably pulling some strings somewhere because officially, according to the rules of Broadway and the union rules, um, probably we weren't lucky if we were lucky observers and I loved it back then. And I had seen the walkthrough, the reading walkthrough previously, I had read the play. So three years later, you know, because of COVID, it was delayed, approximately two years, it was delayed. So the first night, which was a Tuesday night of the second week, we were there and we had, you know, a turnout of our own strategic coach clients who are nearby in the Philadelphia, Washington, DC area, New Jersey. And they had a wonderful time. More came who didn't make it to the pre-performance dinner. So we had about 20 people. You know, they have a tendency to be very forthright about what they feel about anything. And the neat thing about entrepreneurs is they don't have to do things for political reasons. You know, they'll tell you their opinion because they're independent. And, you know, all of them just were thrilled by it. I haven't seen anyone since they came back, but I will see them this week. They'll be in further workshops this week. So I'll, I'll get further insights that they have about it. But then the next night we came back and we just had one guest and we saw the presentation again. And there was a noticeable jump, both in terms of the performance, and the energy of the company, everything involved. But there was a noticeable jump. First of all, the place was packed. It hadn't been the night before, but it was packed for the audience and tremendous enthusiasm. I thought on the Tuesday night, there was several times when the audience didn't know when to clap. Okay. And there was like this little, they didn't get their lines down correctly. The second night, there was no problem. I mean, their applause was, totally timely and totally appropriate. So my sense is that it was gaining momentum. The actors were showing it. everything about the presentation seemed tighter, crisper. And I guess, you know, at the top professional levels, a lot of people, you know, if you just don't see plays a lot, you can't really tell the difference between excellent and great. But I think that the difference between Tuesday night and Wednesday night was in the area of great. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I
1: probably, well, I've never seen a play as many times as I've seen this. <laughs> and one of the things that was really fascinating in seeing the performances, because I was at every preview then opening night. And then I saw the play maybe five times after, and I would have seen it two more times if we hadn't had to close. And Seeing how the actors settle into a part. Now, we only had four days of previews. A Broadway show, for instance, Funny Girl is in previews now. They have a month of just previews to sort of really get the feel of the play and really get into it. Macbeth is coming up on Broadway. They have a month of previews. That's tremendously expensive. Never happens in a regional theater. If you get a week, that's a lot. And the difference, though, that it makes just those few days of performing in front of an audience, because a good actor then knows how to work the positive responses and knows how to get people engaged. And so they also develop more of a comfort or confidence with the part in talking to some of the actors My definition, which happens to coincide with Sheldon Epps, the director, the way that I always put it is that good acting is not performing, it's behaving. Mm -hmm. And when you get to the point that it's behavior, then you're totally there with the character. Mm -hmm. And one of our actors, Stanley Mathis, who's been with us since the beginning, since the initial 29 hour back in 2018, he knew the part but then the nuance that he was able to layer in and the shadowing he was able to layer in and he just made it so great that somebody who came in and saw it, Garrett Gunderson, who we both know, who came in and saw it during previews. He's talking about how much he liked the other actors and so on and then he said, "In Logan, and I said, that was Stanley Mathis. He goes, no, no, that was Logan. <laughs> Yeah, that's who I saw. I saw Logan because I couldn't imagine anybody playing that part Mm -hmm. other than him because he had just, he had so lived with the part that it was all behaviors. There was no performing and it all seemed so authentic. So that was pretty amazing. And that continued to happen as I saw the play, even for a week or so after I saw it with you again. Mm -hmm. So it was seeing that kind of difference is really interesting.
0: Really interesting how that grows. Interestingly, from three years ago, there was a structural change to the play, a, a very major structural change, because really the play is older Lloyd being a narrator of the development of younger Lloyd in the essentially the first half of mm-hmm. the play, and then the second half is... Lloyd on his own as the performer. But what happened because of your script work over the last period of time is that Logan is now a vehicle for Lloyd in the second half in the same way that the older Lloyd was a vehicle for the younger Lloyd. So it balances out. Hmm. You have a relationship essentially of an older person with his younger person, but then you have a relationship with someone who in many ways is an older person for Lloyd as he becomes famous, his ambitions are, you know, he's getting opportunities that match his talent and everything else, you know, and there's a lot of excitement in it, but there's also tragedy in it. But that character became a much more fundamental piece of the structure of the entire play, because of the way that you enhanced Logan's role.
1: Well, that's right. And it was funny very early on, actually before the initial script was finished, this producer, a friend of mine, wanted to introduce me to this producer. And her response was, You need a love story in there. And I said, Well, there is a love story. And she said, No, was, and his wife broke up. And I said, No, the love story is with Logan. And that is the love story. Yeah. And when I realized, you know, just what a a rich character he is and the richness of their relationship, I felt like I could present something that was more unique for an audience to see. Yeah. And so you're right. He did become even more important in those iterations. But what's also interesting, other things that I learned, you know, as I'm thinking about your initial question. So, People's Light Theater, where we ran, they did one evening. It's called a relaxed performance. What that means is that people who have special needs, for instance, who loud noises is painful to them, you know, the things are played at a lower level. The house lights never go completely dark. And the response from this group, because a friend of mine's niece went to it, she has no special needs. But it ended up that she didn't realize that she was booking for that night. But it went phenomenally well. And what was interesting in the production report, you get a production report every night from the stage manager. Everything from costume malfunctions, cues that are missed, lighting cues that are missed, lines that people go up on everything. You get a full report on, on how it went. Well, that evening when they did the uh, relaxed performance performance, the audience broke into applause after Logan's speech about, so what are you gonna do, quit? Because people tell you you can't do something? Mm -hmm. And they felt that it was speaking to them. Mm -hmm. And that scene never got thunderous applause, which is what it got that day, because those people that were there felt that that spoke to them. And I found that really interesting because I can't say that was my intent. Yeah, Happy that it resonated. But, you know, you never really know. And so you're always discovering them. Because it's live, stuff happens. Mm -hmm. And that's really fascinating. That's one of the reasons I love theaters, because the talent is at risk all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's just a tension there. But that's one of the other things I learned is that audiences are going to take things away from it, or miss things, you know, take things away from it that you may have never assumed that they would. And I just thought that was really gratifying because they felt that that spoke to them.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the audiences are really different from one night to the other. I mean, and I think it's one of the differences between amateurs and professionals that professional actors who are really top notch actors will notice immediately. This is a different audience and they'll adjust themselves very quickly to the fact that we've got a different audience, you know. Last night was great, you know, but we can't count that the audience is going to respond tonight the way last night's did.
1: That's right. And, you know, it's also interesting when you get reviewed. And I was talking to Sheldon, the director, about that. Because, you know, if you're going to bask in the good reviews, then you got to also lend some credence to the bad reviews, whether you like what they say or not. And my approach is basically if the same note comes up a few different times, then that's something you need to pay attention to, whether the review is positive and it mentions that or negative and it mentions that. And so, you know, to me, it's kind of data gathering. And of course it feels good having a play out there that's getting fantastic reviews, but it's also, you know, what can you learn? Sometimes nothing. And and in talking to Sheldon about it, You know, because he's been doing this for 45 years. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, how do you respond to reviews? And he goes, well, honestly, the first thing I do is check out who the reviewer is. And I said, and why do you do that? And he said, well, because said, frankly, a lot of times there are people who wish their play had been produced, but it never was, you know, and that's their chance to respond to something. Some people consider themselves dramaturges, so they want to talk about their own expertise in the story.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: he said, and, you know, any of the above might give you a good insight, might not, but there's also oftentimes their own agenda for what they say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting. So there is an opportunity to learn from those, but like in anything in, in any business, it's also important to learn what to ignore. Mm-hmm.
0: Just talking about the reviews, is there anything that particular reviewers pointed out that was a great insight for you? You know, oh, I hadn't even seen that because your play is one play if they're really, you know, this is their full-time job. Your play is one of dozens that they're evaluating out of a particular time period. In other words, it might be 2022. And yeah, best play I've seen so far in 2022, you know, or whatever their particular season, a full season really represents. Is there anything that kind of caught you by surprise that a reviewer, a particular reviewer said? Well, there was something that I guess didn't catch me by surprise, but
1: I felt like they kind of missed the boat. You know, for instance, one of the reviewers didn't like the fact that during the Sister Rosetta Tharp number, yeah. when she gets the whole audience going and you know clapping with the music, he said, uh, "You know, I don't like it when I'm asked to do that, and it takes me out of the play." Well, that's legitimate. I don't like yeah. sing-alongs. It's legitimate. I'm not going to change what we do because it works in the audience. Uh, the audiences as you saw, the two nights you saw, they're so responsive to it. Many of them were clapping before she even went like that <laughs> for the audience. Yeah, That's his particular take on it. So, you know, there are certain things that, okay, I understand that, but that's not going to change anything. <laughs> and, you know, another re- reviewer said that it was interesting because it wasn't meant as a compliment that there is so much happening, that there's so much going on in this story but it was meant more as, you know, they're trying to pack too much in and nobody else said anything remotely like that. And people loved that it was paced like it was. And that the pace was so quick. And, you know, my goal from the beginning was to make it cinematic. And what I mean by that, because that's a word that's tossed around a lot, but as you know, there was a multi-level stage. So, the person at the top level might be lit, then person at the ground level might be lit, then upper right might be lit. And so I was looking to create active engagement, mm-hmm. active watching by the audience, as opposed to just looking at an open proscenium. Yeah. So, you know, if you try to please everybody, you're doomed. I think it is important to be open to, you know, things that have a validity or not. Ultimately. I trust myself, Mm -hmm. I trust Sheldon, who's the main person I collaborate with, and Shelton, our musical director, and Edgar, who's our choreographer, and we talk about these things, and I feel like, you know, more than anything, when you're putting out a product, because now I have a product that I'm bringing to the marketplace, and I want people to buy into that product, right? Which means buy tickets and see it. And by the way, even with your group, two of the people, had seen it just a A week week or so. Yeah, and they wanted to come back and see it again. Mm -hmm. And that was happening quite a bit in terms of repeat business, but also people were coming back and bringing other people with them, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. So you got to listen to your audience, Mm -hmm. you know, because if you're hoping that a joke lands and it doesn't, and it doesn't land in two or three different times in front of an audience... It's not funny. That's right. I can't <laughs> go around and say, Don't you realize how clever that joke was? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So the point is when I hear something that I actually feel it, you know, that's a positive thing, whether I like the comment or not, because it's something I can learn from. Yeah. Because if I think I know it all, I'm in trouble. So, you know, and that's another reason you do previews and put it in front of an audience before you do your formal opening because the critics are involved after you do your premiere. They don't come to the previews Mm -hmm. because the previews is the time to, okay, you got it now in front of an audience. How's it landing? Mm -hmm. And fortunately, we're in a position where it was landing extraordinarily well. Mm -hmm. And actually it built the audience response. In fact, built- from earlier as we went on, word of mouth built, which led to us having our last like 12 performances were sold out. So I, I felt horrible for the theater because they had to return money or ask people to donate it. They, I mean, gave, they gave them options. You could, of course, get your money refunded. You could donate the ticket price or you could apply it towards a future production. But, you know, it's been a tough, tough couple of years for live entertainment. Mm hmm. Yeah. But we learned what we were going to learn. I would have loved to have seen it a couple more times and frankly was looking forward to, you know, next Party week.
0: tonight. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, that's yeah. right. That's right. And toasting everybody and hugging goodbye because we really formed a fantastic community of people. Mm-hmm. And it just felt great. And I think that was also communicated from the stage. I think people felt that. I mean, people felt left there uplifted. Mm -hmm. And I think in the times like we've been going through, we all need an uplift.
0: Well, the thing that I felt the moment that I saw the workshop presentations, I mentioned to you that you had created two crossover experiences where if you get one crossover experience, you've created an experience, a package experience of one kind or another, whether it's theater, or it's video or it's audio. The first crossover is that Lloyd Price is the crossover from an earlier form of music in the United States to an entirely new form of music, namely rock and roll. And that you can't find a major star before Lloyd Price in the rock and roll world. You know, he is the crossover artist. And he was the crossover artist because before that, First of all, teens didn't buy music, the audience for young people, it was an adult audience for recorded music, whether you're talking about, you know, Broadway show tunes or you're talking about classical music or the American Songbook, where you have, you know, famous singers who are singing, you know, great songs. This was teenagers saying, this is a new form of music and we like what we like, and The recorded music was available to them in 45s, you know, where before it had been 78s and I don't know when 33 and a third came in, but the 45 came in and you had an A side and a B side and they bought lots of them. And it was a white audience that was very, very excited and enthusiastic about a black artist a white audience with a black artist. That's a great crossover story. But then the other one is the way you wrote the play itself, that at the end, there's a great crossover moment when he has every reason, according to, you know, the current narrative out there to be seen as a victim and see this is what one part of American society does to another part of American. And he wasn't buying any of it in a very, very dramatic way. But he conveyed it to you when you did the documentary film in a very dramatic way. You were passing on his own summing up essentially of his lifetime in his 80s. And he said, no, no, he said, this only happens in America. I'm an American, you know, I was an American soldier, I'm an American taxpayer, and I have dreams and there are American dreams. And I said, I haven't seen this in any form of entertainment in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, it's funny
1: you mentioned that because I even remember historically when you talked about that ending, you're correct. And it is an American story. That's the point. Yeah. And that American story, did he have more obstacles that he had to overcome? Yes, he did. And were those obstacles a result of race? Yes, they were. But ultimately, what he considered himself was an American. And that's what's so interesting because also we're all immigrants here. (laughs) We're all refugees here. Unless you're Native American, your ancestors aren't
0: from here. Well, you know, they haven't been here long compared to the rest of the world. You know, I mean, (laughs) the thing about it that you're saying, he said, look, we've got every environment has crazy things that Can oppose you. And I mean, and Logan, I think Logan really got a handle on that too, you know, that when Birdland shut down and they could create the turntable, you know, and the first whack vehicle, entertainment vehicle, south of Harlem in New York City, you know, I mean, but that's kind of an American thing. We're going to be the first, we're going to break ground. And of course, there's a lot of tragedy around that particular situation. And I think you mentioned that it was reflected in the composition of the audiences. Even in the short time of two weeks, you were starting to see that you were getting black and white audiences near the end of the run. That's right. And what I loved about that is that Lloyd's goal, when
1: stated, when he and Logan are at the turntable, and they were talking about the club that they wanted to open being the turntable. And Lloyd said, black and white people eating together, listening to music together, just being together. That's a dream. And he accomplished that with his music. And I feel like we were accomplishing that with the play. Yeah. And that was the word of mouth, which was great. It was really great because that was also an audience. People's light didn't have much of before. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, Early on in the play, when you hear on the radio, Gene Autry singing. And he says, this is what there was to listen to. And
0: Charlie Temple.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's really hard for most of us to understand the handicap it is when there are no role models, so to speak, when there's nothing out there for you to see, to latch on to. And then, it, you know, happened in sports and it happened in entertainment but it wasn't like what you or I grew up with, where it seemed like anything was possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that those early doors that got opened, or at least cracked a bit, where you could peek through and see other possibilities, like Manora, the voodoo woman who helps Lloyd with his headaches, says they don't think about their future. And Lloyd says, why is that? And he says, because they don't think they have one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's profound. hmm You know, so it's really interesting, and it seems to touch people on a very, very fundamental
0: level in the play. Yeah, and there's nothing forced about it. I mean, it's completely contextual. I mean, and that's why it's important to pack everything in to pick up on the reviewer being, why why are they packing so much in? Because there was a lot to be packed in. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) If there isn't a lot to pack in and it feels packed in is because you had to invent stuff or you have to create some sort of narrative that the story didn't support in the first place.
1: You're absolutely right. That's very insightful. You know, it's also really interesting because nobody, with the exception of that person, nobody mentioned the language. Okay, there's a lot of profanity. Yeah. There's a lot of words that you could find offensive. But because it was all contextual, it was all within that time. That's how people talked. That's how it was that nobody took issue with that, which is really interesting because there were concerns. I didn't have them just because I felt, you know, Lloyd and I talked about it. Actually, after we did the 29 hour, there were people that made some comments to Lloyd and I,
0: and I said, that's how we were talked to. Yep. That's what happened. I was drafted into the U.S. Army right at the beginning of Vietnam. It started in April and I was, because I was older, so they started at 25 and drafted downward. But I went to Fort Knox for my basic training and half the barracks were black, half the barracks. You know, you had 50, 60 people in the barracks, you know, on two floors in and then I was at Fort Dix, New Jersey, just down the road from New York for the secondary training. Again, it was half black, uh, you know, and the language was what you would expect among 19, year olds you know. And a lot of it was going back and forth between whites and blacks, calling each other, you know, outrageous names and everything like that, you know. And the U.S. military was actually the first institution that was actually... You know, integrated. Harry Truman, nineteen forty-eight. Right. He said, "If okay. if they can come home in a coffin, which a lot of them did, a lot of, them, but they were in segregated units during the Second World War." And he said, okay. "No more of this." And yeah, now it took a good twenty years for it to make its way to become standard operating procedure. But by the time I was in, which was twenty years after the Second World War, you know. You didn't think anything of it. And you, you know, you had people you liked, you had people you disliked, but they came in both colors or (laughs) anything in between. And uh, you watched yourself, you know, you, you were careful with your words. Well,
1: it's interesting. I was going to mention Truman, you know, and if you look at Truman's life, the precursor to this was his best friend was Jewish. And Harry Truman's parents would not let that person in their house. Mm -hmm. And so I think in a very profound way, the wrongness of that kind of racism
0: permeated Truman's consciousness. Yeah, and he was the one who said, we're going to recognize Israel when his entire cabinet, and these were famous historical kids, said, no, you can't do that. And he said, yeah we're going to do that. We're going to do that, you know, and there's a long story of things going on behind the scenes that made that possible, but it still required the U.S. president to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this.
1: And I think there is a linkage between, you
0: know, after all, he was, you know, he grew up where everybody, if you were a businessman, you belonged to the Ku Klux Klan, and he did too. (laughs) He did too, you know, I mean,
1: no, it's fascinating when you look at some of the antecedents of this and why we respond to what we respond to. And, you know, there was also a chasm between Roosevelt and Truman. Oh yeah. Roosevelt didn't think much of Truman at all, didn't even meet with him. You know, it was an expedient choice for vice president, and he didn't even meet with Truman. And part of that was just the elitism and wealth of Roosevelt and basically working class Harry Truman, you know? So, and I think that all these things inform decisions and inform perspective and all of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with the play, one of the things that happened was when we did our first run through and the drummer was there, Jimmy Coleman, who's terrific. I didn't know him before the play, but I got to know him a bit. And he came up to me afterwards and said, I like what you did. You told a true story and you weren't polite about it. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I grew up in Alabama. I saw my father go through this. I went through this. And the way that you portrayed it is how it was and true. And that's how people talked. Mm -hmm. So you told a compelling, authentic story. What felt great to me was it felt like a validation Mm -hmm. when he said that. Because, you know, could have been, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, I had the advantage of working with Lloyd and talking to Lloyd and, you know, really getting his bone marrow into this in terms of how he viewed the world and what it was. But it was, you know, it's really interesting because you treaded an area that can be a minefield. And I, by the way, these reasons you're talking about is why. I so much wanted to tell this story because it's about race, it's about music, it's about our world and popular culture, and just you know a very rich area to mine for story, which I think is tremendous. So circling back, we have a startup. We put that startup in front of a consumer audience. They bought tickets, and those initial people that bought tickets convinced other people to buy tickets. Yeah. Pretty soon we were selling out, which was great, and having a mixed audience, which was not characteristic of their previous productions. Yeah. And I felt really good about that. I was, yeah, I was. Although on a practical level, we got just about everything we could hope for from the run we had. We didn't get a full clean video of the show, which I'm sorry about. But other than that, we got what we needed you know the intelligence we needed to move forward that proof of concept but i was learning so much watching it multiple times that i'm sorry i didn't have the chance to sort of complete the course if you will so now the
0: question is you know the next step well just from your understanding of what happens next you've had a approvable moment I have a thing called, uh, it's one of the thinking tools I use for the upper levels of strategic coach because a lot of them are creating brand new stuff and taking it into the marketplace. You know, the new ideas, new methods, new processes, you know, new products. And I said, you know, the first thing, is it even plausible? In other words, can you see it in your mind? You know, it doesn't exist yet, but you can actually see it and it's plausible you know, you can see it, it's very intriguing and it's worth trying. And so that's the first one. Second one, it's possible that you've actually committed and you're actually you're in the courage stage in the sense that you don't have the capability yet and you don't have the confidence. So when you don't have that, you have to substitute commitment and courage until you start. And that was a long period. I I mean, that was a long period for you. I mean, this project in your mind started six, seven years ago, I think, when you were doing the original interviews with Lloyd Price and everything else. So that's a long time to spend in the area of possible. But then it's provable. And I think the provable started showing up in the readings, in the workshops, and just the the actors, well, they're excited about employment, whatever form it comes in. But the people that you gathered in on the creative team, they have offers continually for other projects. And the biggest proof was that they stuck with it with a two-year delay. They had other offers during that period of time. And that team you put together three years ago, they stuck with the project. Well, you're right. And that was... Also very gratifying. And I think
1: that also allowed us to create a sense of community with the actors that we brought into that, Mm -hmm. that I think translated into not only a fantastic environment to explore and create in, but it engendered a commitment among the cast. This wasn't just a job. They're out of New York for two months at a time where some of them hadn't worked for over two years. And, they had a commitment to the story and thought the story was important and they were doing something that all felt incredibly gratifying but you know when you look at the next steps and it then becomes like you know another business decision you know what do we do next do we tour the show do we four wall which means take over a theater in a place where we could maybe run for four to six months then come to new york if we're able to come straight to new york is that even a wise decision considering how expensive and treacherous the New York market is. I mean, when you think about the fact there's 41 Broadway stages, 20 of them are always full with shows like Wicked and Hamilton and Book of Mormon, et cetera. And there's 20, 21 that are in play during various intervals. It's tremendously expensive. You know, so what's the most responsible thing to do? Because I have investors of which you're one. I have to make responsible decisions for the investors and for, you know, the future of the play. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes all the strategic decisions such as so what are the potential markets where a show like this could bring people in for 4 to 6 months. And you know, and there are cities that come to mind with that like Chicago and DC, possibly Los Angeles. Could you tour it and set up a 12-city tour that would be friendly to this show? Because the more you establish that proof of concept, the better the deal you can negotiate. Like any business, the better the deal you can negotiate Mm -hmm. when you create demand for what you're doing. So when you ask me what I've learned, I'm constantly learning this stuff. But a lot of the things that I did in business directly apply. It's just different terms. Mm -hmm. But the thinking, the business thinking strategically around it
0: are the same. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I feel, you know, I mean, outsider, you know, that I've, you know, been going to New York, seeing two or three plays every time I go, so two or three times a year, times two or three. So I'm seeing six to eight plays, and I haven't seen a better play than this play. Thank you. I haven't seen better production values that were just appropriate. And what I mean that I've seen production values that were extraordinary because the script wasn't very good. Mm -hmm. Well, that of course makes me
1: feel good. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting why I know that you had a background earlier, your background in theater. What made you, when you are so busy with what you're doing, but, you know, you and Babs have had been such tremendous support to me during this time. Why? Why did you get into this?
0: Well, you know, first of all, I'm a great believer for entrepreneurs. There's no such thing as retirement. I have a phrase and it's, you know, apt to the topic that we're talking about. I said, you die on stage. I said, not today, but sometime in the future, that you're in the midst of a performance when you get caught by surprise. That should be your intention, you know, for the end of your life. And there is no slowing down. And one of the things didn't have anything to do with the particular play. It had to do with what you were doing, you know. And I don't have many people that I deal with enormously that are more or less in the same Age as I am, and you are. We're both in our seventies, and we have, you know, a background of born in the forties, childhood in the fifties, and then, you know, university and other things in your sixties. So there's a common background here. And the fact that you're doing the most exciting, biggest, riskiest project of your life in your seventies, I said, what a neat thing. And plus we're friends, you know. People said you're investing in the play. I said, I have to tell you the truth, I'm investing in a friendship. Okay. And I just thought it was neat what you were doing. And I'm at the point in my life where I can support and just invest in things that are really neat. And this was the neatest thing going. And you very kindly let us backstage. You let us see the formation for that and it kind of completed something that I thought I was going to be in when I was younger and I wouldn't have had the follow-through for a career in this area. But it was just really neat to be, you know, connected back to something in my early twenties that I thought I might be doing. And in some ways I've created my own theater. You know, I'm the I'm the playwright, I'm the writer, you know, I've got a theater and We do thirty-year runs, (laughs) and I have forty entrepreneurs who are beyond thirty years. I've seen them every quarter for thirty years. You know, we have team member, first team member, was is thirty years. So I like that. But I like the whole notion of theater. I think, I think that guy Shakespeare was right. All of life is a play. You know, if you approach it in the right way and you look for the, the play in life, I think life is more interesting.
1: Well, it is. And, you know, there's an exercise in theater, particularly improvisation, which is you say yes and. Yeah. So that you don't short circuit the conversation around something.
0: You always help your partner. That's right. That's right. No matter where your partner goes,
1: you help them. Well, yeah. And I think that that's also a thing in business that there's far too little of. Because I think that people misconstrue what competition is, because the real competition is among people who do things well and create a more desirable destination, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that can even build a consumer market. You know, I think there's so many lessons that we can learn from theater that directly apply to business and entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. and this is indeed an entrepreneurial activity oh yeah so i'm happy to have you and babs along on this journey with me because it's fun even the opportunity to do this and just talk about it Mm -hmm. and you know what are the discoveries that are going on it's interesting and it makes me constantly have to look at question and so i do anyhow you know i don't think You can do anything well if you're not curious. And I think that curiosity is essential. And sometimes the curiosity is, is an audience going to respond to this? Well, let's try it during previews and see what happens.
0: Yeah. The interesting thing about your next step, the thing that you have going in favor, there isn't one that's comfortable and secure. (laughs) You're absolutely right. (laughs) So you're being protected from any... Sure bet. You're completely protected from sure bets. Yes.
1: What I wanted to do is try to, you know, as I got into my 70s, I wanted to try to figure out what could I do that is nearly impossible?
0: And then let's add a global pandemic on top of it. (laughs) Uh, Well, here's an interesting fact about that. I'm just starting at the beginning of March I'm just getting back my first live workshops, you know, where people are actually coming and sitting. And I mean, the faces are recognizable. In some cases, I've known them for 15, 20 years, but they're different people. And even though people said, oh, we're back to normal again, I said, it isn't the same normal. There's a completely different normal now. And I said, I have a feeling that the world divided in two during the COVID. The people who are really soundly based, you know, they have real values, they have real commitments, they have really great relationships, got a lot stronger during the two years. And people who weren't soundly based fell apart. And my sense is that you're dealing with tougher actors, you're dealing with tougher creative crew right now. I think you're dealing with tougher investors, and I think you're dealing with tougher audiences right now. So I think that the whole way in which this might have happened before COVID is a completely different story now. I think people are a little bit, they're more resilient and they're looking for something that reflects that in their entertainment, and they're not getting much of it.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, whether you're doing a play or starting a business, persistence, adaptability, and resilience Mm -hmm. are all really key factors because none of it's easy. (laughs) You know, the thing that I can honestly say is the journey to getting there when we're in rehearsal, when I'm working, you know, with the different talents involved, I love it. Mm -hmm. I just love it. And it's great. And when I see them on stage, the coolest feeling that I get is when I forgot that I wrote it. Yeah. Because they have taken over the material and made it theirs in a way that I'm watching it like another audience member. And that's a
0: neat feeling. Well, just like them, you're behaving it. Right. Well, that's right. It's exactly right. That was Tony D'Angelo, who was one of the coach clients. That little thing he wrote about producer in his second review. What's the producer, you know? And. I thought a producer, you know, has to take a lot of the hits to protect the people who are, you know, creating the experience. So the producer, you know, has to shield a lot of the talent from insecurity from, you know, you have to give others courage when you don't feel confident. That's right.
1: But isn't that also good leadership? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I was fortunate in each of the departments to have very strong leaders. Mm -hmm. And that was great. And that was great to watch because it then gave, just like what you're saying, it gave the talent, the confidence.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, not being afraid to tell somebody, wow, that was really good, or let's try it this way. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because there's all different kinds of approaches to everything. You know, there are those where the director is basically a dictator. There's those where the lead producer, in this case, I'm the lead producer, but I am acutely aware of all the things I don't know, which is why I'm trying to surround myself with, well, I always do anyhow, try to surround myself with the best possible people. And I think that makes, you know, a huge difference because the people have to execute. You know, there's the manager, as you and I have spoken about, And then there's the person who has the vision. And, you know, they're both essential and important to the final product, but they're very different things.
0: Yeah, well, the managers, their job is to optimize and maximize what you already have. Okay. Leaders are to create what is needed next. Right. And this is an ongoing story.
1: -hmm. And I am very grateful for the opportunity you're giving me to talk about that story and to share that.
0: Yeah. Well, this is my coaching method. I get entrepreneurs to tell their stories. And then I say, so one thing I tell them, you realize that this is a life sentence, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I tell entrepreneurs, you know, well, I could have done something else. And I said, really? You could have done something (laughs) else? I said, when would that have been, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? When would you have done that different thing? And they said, well, you know, there's always alternatives. And I said, well, you haven't taken advantage of any of them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are very few sudden switches in life. You know. But the other part about that is, could I have predicted that when my friend called me and said, I want you to meet Lloyd Price, that it would have had this seismic, life-changing impact on me? No. No way would I have known that.
0: No, and it's a good thing you didn't. Well, that's true. And
1: I consciously wanted to channel my younger self because I was so seduced by the opportunity and ideas because there was no money to be seduced by. I had to raise the money, you know, but I was so seduced by the entire undertaking and the emotional satisfaction of working with people like that and telling a story that I believe is so important and honoring Lloyd's life. And I hope establishing what his legacy should have been because so many people didn't know he's an unsung hero. A lot of people didn't know who he was. And that is a thing where sometimes you meet somebody and it, I must have been ready for a change because I certainly entertained and was open to it. But would I have thought that it would truly be a life changing meeting that would grow into what it has? No. How can you anticipate stuff like that?
0: Yeah. Well, I think for me, you know, and anyone, you know, who has experience of the historical period, I think. The narrative right now, there was the Second World War, and that ended, and then there was JFK in the '60s, you know. And there's this like 15-year people said, well, not much happened, you know, Ozzy and Harriet and Mickey Mouse Club and things like that. But that was not really a big thing. And I think that what you've done is that you've given a real sense of depth and gravity that there were. Fundamentally big things happening in this late 40s and throughout the 50s. There was very fundamental stuff happening.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The fact of the matter is there was probably never a time in history where nothing was happening. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> There was always stuff going on. Yeah. We weren't as bombarded with it minute to minute in our lives like we are now. Mm-hmm. And those things that with my close friends – What's so interesting, you know, when you talk about our age, we were alive during this period, you know, with separate drinking fountains and the insults that went along with those kinds of things. It's not like we're reading ancient history. We grew up in that. Mm -hmm. And that I find kind of mind boggling, you know, just like I found it mind boggling when my kids were in high school and they were studying the Vietnam War, you know, so what I was so present with and it was part of my time in college that's their history <laughs> it's just a weird shift when you realize that and I think that the birth of the youth movement of rock and roll mm-hmm. of the things that happened in our popular culture the civil rights movement all of these things were all these fuses were lit in the 50s and manifest, you know, with Johnson passing the Civil Rights Act, just so many things happen
2: Mm -hmm.
0: that's so astounding on so many fronts. Well, the entire recording industry and the top 10 radio, the top 10 hits that went nationwide and, uh, you know, the interstate highway system, you know, and, you know, the GI Bill, which completely changed the... Texture of American society because individuals, the 12 million who fought in the war, would have gone back to the inner city and picked up their blue collar lives in the inner city. And they got house loans. That's right. And they got education. And the car became a big thing. And you could go anywhere. And industry was moving to places where they now had air conditioning. So it didn't matter how hot it was, you know all these fundamental, but they were seismic. They were seismic. They weren't necessarily above ground. A lot of the 60s stuff, it was nightly on TV, but there was just a lot of shifts that went on.
1: Right. And arguably, what became known as the American dream
0: really happened during that period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole history there that's the subject of another podcast, but it was only in the Great Depression that people started talking about the American dream. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly the brainchild of Jewish film producers in Hollywood. (laughs) You know, the Mickey Rooney Mm and Judy Garland and the white picket fence, you know, and everything else. I checked with my relatives, none of them actually experienced that life. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up in the twenties and thirties and everything like that. They didn't, you know. The US is American dream, so that was part of the dream. But what I love about it is your reinforcement of that is coming from a a totally unpredictable and surprising source. And I think that's what's unique about what you've done here. And that along the way, he did not sabotage his life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel very fortunate. I, of course, want to bring this to as full of fruition and success as I can. For me, it's also really important that I
0: enjoy the journey. Yeah. To a certain extent, um, everybody's got to stay scared. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're right. You're right. And that's what it is. You know,
1: I understand more than I ever did when you'd hear about certain performers who were had stage fright. And you think, oh my God, Aretha Franklin has stage fright? She goes out there and so commands the stage. The fact of the matter is that's not uncommon. And I think it relates back to the idea that in a live performance, you're always at risk. Yep. Things happen. It's really fascinating. And because of course, I know all the lines so well, when in rehearsal, when somebody would go up on a line, I would, of course, notice when they went up on it, but more so I would notice how the other actor in the scene helped the other actor get back on track. Yeah. That was really fascinating. All these details, Dan, which are so interesting, sitting in on the choreography, as Edgar Godino was working on the choreography, and I had posted something on Instagram where it just showed a flip. And I said, this is not a judo class. This is actually dance. And there would be all these gestures, each one rehearsed separately, that when you put together led to that marvelous opening dance number that Edgar choreographed so well. And it was so cool. And just seeing how that mosaic is built and that each of these little moves, you know, you had to master that. And the dancers, by the way, had to get to the theater an hour earlier because they all had to do exercises because the potential for injury if you weren't warmed up was high. So it's all just so fascinating that all these things, there was a part in the play where I'm sure you'll remember it when I describe it, is at the end, after that monologue that you spoke about, where Lloyd says, maybe if I sing a little louder, you'll hear me. And St. Aubin who plays adult Lloyd, goes into this guttural sound. And it was amazingly powerful and emotional. And when he did that for the first time in rehearsal, I went over to him afterwards and I said, man, that was powerful. I felt like I was watching a rebirth. And he lit up, we bumped fists, He said, "That's exactly what I was going for." Good, and that is something that he came up with, and because of the intelligence, creativity, and generosity of Sheldon Epps, the director, he told him to go for it. Yeah, and you know, didn't mean we were going to adopt it, but it was try it. Well, it worked, (laughs) you know, and it was really cool. And it's that kind of thing because. I know people who have been in situations where they're not given that creative latitude at all.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I think that in any business, including theater, if you don't give the people you've brought on board the opportunity to express their ideas in a certain way, why did you hire them? Mm -hmm. You know, and those are probably the worst people at delegating because they try to micromanage everybody going off script Is sometimes where you find the gems. Yeah, and there are other times, by the way, that you know I had to say to one of the other actors and gave them the note: just say what's written. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and so you got to gauge each one, but you got to be open to the possibility that that discovery, like what Saint did, Mm -hmm. can lead to something very powerful.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, this uh, enough R and R. Back in the saddle. <laughs> so anyway, I'll enjoy the next stage, whichever number stage this is. interesting
2: track. <laughs> yeah, I'll
0: enjoy the next stage of this. But if we can get, with your permission, certain outtakes from the you know the video outtakes and combine them with the videos here, because I think some things will really punctuate the interviews, and we'll just re-edit it and send it out. But we have a big audience. I mean, we have 11,000 who have been in coach who I think would find the conversation that we're having fascinating from a creative standpoint and an entrepreneurial standpoint. But I want to get them ready that when the play is available, that they go to the play, you know, and you prepare the market for the new offering. So anyway, I'd be happy to do that. Well, thank you so much. That
1: would be great. And I think what might be interesting to talk about next time, because we sort of, you know, we both kind of walked the perimeter about it, but doing a deep dive into three ideas. What is success for you? Mm-hmm. What is failure? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And the obsession that seems to be with a lot of business, which is how do you scale it? Mm -hmm. Because I think the question is, well, do you scale it? And that depends on how you define success, what you want out of it. And I don't think people ask themselves the questions in a way that can optimize the path they want to take. And by optimize, I don't mean make them the most money. Sometimes it's about the most satisfaction because you'll make enough money if you run your business intelligently. But what is your goal? Mm -hmm. And maybe that is the goal. Yeah. But acknowledging what that is, I think can help you establish a map. And I think, you know, you're dealing with that with so many people across the board and such a wide spectrum of personalities. I think that could be really fascinating to talk about.
0: Yep. Think about those things. No, it's neat. As I said, I thought it was just a neat thing to get involved with. And, you know, it's all in the realm of, wanting and not needing it's just something that i wanted to do and babs just wanted to do and a lot of things in life you have to do them because you need them and it's nice to have some big things you just do them because you want them
1: and being a beneficiary of that (laughs) i am grateful for it so thank you
0: yeah okay thank you very
1: much that was good thanks for joining us today on our show anything and everything If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit a creativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.